the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you, sir, and good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is, of course, a Thursday, the 25th day of March, and uh, we're coming at you here at five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., on another edition of Lifeline here in the stead each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and uh, we're going to do more of that today. Coming up a little bit later on, uh, with all of this talk about the Biden agenda and so many issues that are sort of front plate burner, front burner for the president in um, the opening days here of his presidency, and knowing that there might very well likely be another paradigm shift within control of the Senate in now under two years, a lot trying to be accomplished. And part of it is reliant upon the filibuster, potentially, uh, in order to allow all of that to not happen from the Republican side. So what of all the talk about filibusters? and ending them, and what that means. Where do they come from, after all? And are filibusters today truly the same type of filibuster that we knew historically, where a senator would get up in the chamber and go on endlessly for hours at end in an attempt to try and shut down effective debate and, and thus delay the vote? Well, we'll get all those details. We've invited constitutional expert Bob Zadek to uh, stop on by a little bit later on in the program tonight and give us some insights as to um, who really is the bigger abuser of the filibuster and what it would look like to use the so-called nuclear option to eliminate it. All that coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. I want to lead off, though, with an update on what's been going on in the world of money. As you know, last week we headed into... Um, the, the psychologically important 33,000 territory on the Dow. And I, I emphasize psychologically because at these numbers, whether we're at 29, 30, 31, anywhere in that neighborhood, the numbers are so astronomical that perhaps a good majority of us really don't fully understand what they represent or how significant they may or may not be. And when you talk about the Dow being up or down by a certain percentile, that's one thing. When you talk about the Dow being up and down by numbers of points, generally it's not as significant as it might appear to be. Now, we've seen a pullback over recent days from the 33,000 high, although today was not one of them. Let's get some details now. Dan Beltran joins us, Premier Advisor with Vitucci and Associates. And, uh, Dan, we kind of stopped the downward trend today on all three of the major indices. 
Yeah, they opened or they opened down. They closed positive. Uh, green across the board, Dow, Nasdaq, and S and P. We've seen quite a bit of volatility with the Nasdaq lately. Uh, the S and P has been, dare I say, the more moderate of the three, and the Dow has, uh, like you mentioned, been psychologically important above that thirty thousand range. And um, I think what you've seen lately is investors taking some down days as opportunities to get into the value stocks in that Dow Jones index there. And uh, the 10-year has crept up a little bit, then recently pulled back slightly. So inflation's still in the mind of investors, but uh, we'll, we'll take the green days when we can get them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, <laughs> you know, the green days that give us more green are, are certainly encouraging, although not everyone is necessarily participating fully. And I would suspect, Dan, on the heels of the um, the earthquake, so to speak, the economic earthquake that is COVID-19, that just ironically uh, this week is marking the one-year anniversary uh, since we all received the stay-at-home orders. Uh, I'm wondering for individuals that got really nervous and said, I got to go to the sideline. This is making me feel very uncomfortable. A year ago felt maybe to them like it was the beginning of 2008, 2009 all over again. Now they've been on the side all of this time while we've seen this significant uptick in the markets what does this mean to those individuals and should they be dollar cost averaging back into the market so that they can take advantage of some of this momentum at the very least to try and keep pace with inflation and grow that nest egg toward retirement well you have to think about what the purpose of the money is and if it's a retirement nest egg depending upon your timeline if you have been on the sidelines like you mentioned since last year and you want to get back in, and it's a good idea for the long term, dollar cost averaging is absolutely a great way to go about it rather than just dump everything back in in one fell swoop. Um, you know, it, you, investors got the uneasy feeling as COVID came about about a year ago, and for those that, you know, jumped out and parked in cash, um, I'm, I'm curious how that feeling compares to the feeling like you mentioned that some folks have today where when you get out, that's great. And if you avoid any kind of subsequent downturn, that's a, that's a good feeling, but that just gives rise to the next question is when do you get back in? And, and so you need to be in uh, for the long term and in one way, shape or form. And so, that is definitely something, you know, are we going to steady on at around these levels? Is this kind of a base that we'll be forming here with some other things that will kind of propel us in the years to come to levels that are even higher than we've reached already? That remains to be seen, but, you know, your strategy needs to take into account everything and then some. Ironically, 12 years ago, we were at 6,000. 7,000 in that neighborhood at the dip in the market um, on the heels of all the derivatives and what was going on in real estate. Who would have thought that we would manage to not only climb back out, recover, uh, but then head to these, you know, heretofore unseen meteoric numbers? And I guess it really ultimately 
requires a deft touch to manage all of this. I, I, I can't really imagine how an individual who's busy raising a family, putting kids through school, going to work every day, maybe they're a part of the sandwich generation where they're having to look after both children and older parents, and yet at the end of the day decide what stocks and bonds they ought to be in and what the proper diversity mix is for the <laughs> for their retirement portfolio that that would seem to be not only a very overwhelming task but one uh, certainly challenging from the standpoint of just the time that it takes to analyze all of this and have that forward looking forward thinking approach to investment choices as one heads toward retirement with that thought in mind for folks that say you know what this this is something i really i really recognize needs to be actively managed but i also recognize i'm not the one to be managing it how can vitucci and Associates its help well by giving you that second set of eyes you know you mentioned a number of different things there but one of the one of the common themes that I hear from folks that have investment experiences that were uh, unpleasant I'll just say is concentration you know we hear stories about folks losing money back in the dot-com bust you hear stories of folks losing money back in the 08 financial crisis. And an overwhelming majority of those stories have a case where assets were concentrated either in one or a few companies or a specific type of investment. And so when you concentrate your risk, yes, you give yourself the opportunity for an excellent return, but you also give yourself uh, the, the chance of, of taking it on the chin. And so you want to maintain some level of diversity, but you also want to maintain a certain level of growth. And there's so many choices out there, Craig. There's, there's value. There's, there's growth, blends, large, mid, small, domestic, international, emerging, uh, and, and categories and subcategories within each of those. So uh, you definitely need to take advantage of somebody that's willing to give you you know, a complimentary uh, second look to open your eyes to see, well, you know, maybe you could be doing things a little bit better here or in that area, and here's why. And toward that end, if folks want to get more information, maybe take advantage of a complimentary financial health and retirement plan review, an opportunity really to get a second opinion, sit down with a member of the Vitucci and Associates advisory team, be it Pat himself or Dan Beltran, Go one-on-one, -on -one, take a look at where you stand today, what your goals are for retirement, how aggressive you are or need to be when it comes to setting money aside, and equally true, how aggressive your investment choices should or shouldn't be as you head toward that retirement. Well, that complimentary appointment can be had either by phone or easily over the Internet. Simply go online to don'tinvestandforget.com today and schedule your appointment. No cost or obligation whatsoever. And as I mentioned, in about an hour of your time, uh, seated with Dan Beltran or another member of the Vitucci and Associates advisory team, you can really get a good understanding as to what your financial position is today and whether or not your current choices are in harmony with your timeline for retirement, your goals for retirement, and your appetite for risk, all critically important factors. So don't delay. Take advantage of that appointment today. Call toll-free 888-PLAN-WISE. That's 888-P-L-A-N-W-I-S-E. Or easier still, schedule your appointment online by going to don'tinvestandforget.com.
That's don'tinvestandforget.com. And our thanks to Dan Beltran, Premier Advisor with Fitucci and Associates for that Wall Street update. 516, let's move now to a uh, Road Ahead update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. 20 minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline. And as I mentioned at the top of the hour, today was a big day for President Biden, his first uh, official press conference and uh, the slightly over an hour long event covered plenty of topics. Um, One that didn't get touched on too deeply, but perhaps bears um, some discussion today, is not just the very aggressive agenda that Biden is promoting, uh, perhaps out of nod to the notion for some that uh, the slender majority, 50 plus the VP's vote, to pass legislation may be a short-lived one, in which case trying to pass as much Um, legislation as part of the Biden agenda in the next uh, remaining 18, 19 months, uh, critically important. But with all of that, the lingering question as to whether or not all of that will really come to fruition anyway, given the slender majority and the fact that the one tool that remains in the pocket of Republicans is the filibuster. We want to spend some time today talking about this somewhat arcane methodology used by the Senate to shut down debate and essentially derail legislation that does not qualify for a supermajority of 60 votes or more. As we turn to our resident constitutional historical expert, Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, is the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, The Bob Zadek Show, which locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area comes your way every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And his program is, in fact, the answer uh, to some of the uh, mindless talking head programs that you catch on the weekends, where he really gets down into the issues, not just with the give and take from one side and the other, but also to understand the historical significance behind many of these issues that are being debated and cutting through a lot of the frivolity and nonsense and really getting down to um, the the nitty-gritty, so to speak, of issues that are facing us in this day and age. And Bob, as always, we are privileged to have you spend some time with us. Thank you, Craig. And by Somewhat of a of a bad connection. Every eighth or that you take drops off. So we'll do the best we can. If I have trouble receiving you, yeah, we're we're indeed having that a bit on our end that I'm going to recommend to my producer uh, during the break. Uh, Nate, if you can switch him over to that uh, top-secret special telephone line that we have, which is a direct line into uh, Bob's headquarters in a secret underground bunker, uh, that will probably (laughs) help with some of our connection issues here uh, today. Let's talk a bit about the history of the filibuster and how in some ways it's it's changed from what had sort of been the the historical get up and talk for hours on end sometimes heading into a day in fact if memory serves me right historically i think that um it was strom thurmond who got up in the senate 
and went on for a record 24 hours and 18 minutes by himself um, to essentially shut, shut down some legislation back in 1957. So, Bob, with all that, give me your sense, a um, little bit of history here, as to how the filibuster has changed from what it used to be, uh, more literal, to where it is today. Well, I guess I should start with Jimmy, with, um, uh, Jimmy um, Stewart and work forward. Um, uh, Jimmy Stewart, of course, was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that iconic old movie, which will be a civics lesson to our listeners about how the filibuster works. Um, but in a few words, the filibuster, and we'll get into mechanics, but there's a principle that really is almost more important than the mechanics, but we will cover both mechanics uh, and principle. But the principle is, there, there are two key principles, and each citizen has to first of all decide how they feel about the principle. The filibuster only carries out a principle. So what is this principle? The principle is that there has been since our founding a fear and a suspicion of majority rule. Now that almost seems like it's contrary to our collective American DNA, but it is not. There's no reason to think that 51% of the people are inherently smarter than 49%, or they are wiser. There's no reason to think that automatically. While the odds are a tiny bit in support of that, one would think, but it doesn't automatically, it doesn't necessarily follow. Further, Further, our Constitution, in many ways, is totally disinterested in majority rule. And by that I mean, we, we being you, I, and everybody on our soil, have, under the Constitution, certain rights that not only a majority cannot take away, but if there was unanimous vote that we, you and I shouldn't have certain rights, even unanimous vote cannot cause us to lose our rights. They are rights we have that no one and no government can take away. They are obvious speech, uh, conscience, travel, religion, etc. We can make a long list. So even if 51% of the people or 80% said certain citizens can't have those rights, those, that 80% doesn't get to force their will on the 20%. So we start with what is so obvious people don't think about it, is that there's, in many ways there's nothing compelling about majority rule. Indeed, one of the founders once observed that if if that founder was going to be ruled, have his rights taken away, and he was going to be harmed, it doesn't make him feel any better about it if the harm was caused by one despotic ruler or by a despotic 
majority. The rights are still taken away, and our life gets much worse. So we start with the premise that majority rule is nothing special. You have to have some rules or else you don't get them to make laws and govern. But there's nothing special about majority rule. And Congress and the founders, since the founding, have always felt that, well, changes should go slowly, i.e. after deliberation. So they built into the system of checks and balances a very, very clunky, cumbersome system where laws are passed by one house of Congress or bills are passed by one house of Congress, then the other house of House of Congress has to pass the same law. If they pass different laws, they go into conference and they reconcile. Then they finally end up with a law that both houses will vote for. Then it goes to the president, and the president gets to decide if he or she likes it. If the president doesn't like it, it's vetoed. It goes back to the houses of Congress, and they get to override the veto, but only with a two-thirds majority, not a simple arithmetic majority. So it's a pretty clunky system, happily so, which means laws, would one would think, have to be deliberative and thought about and passed through a lot of chambers before they get to be enacted. And then they, even after all of that, they go to the Supreme Court or they might go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will be the ultimate arbiter on whether that law, having gone through that process, is in fact constitutional, doesn't pass the requirements of our Constitution. That's all intentional. It's clunky as can be, and happily so. So that's what we have. Now, the Senate uh, has always been, it's been called somewhat with a snide tone and somewhat sincerely, the world's greatest deliberative body. Sometimes that's said with sarcasm and sometimes with sincerity. Well, what makes it a great deliberative body? If it is, people can disagree, but if you think it does, what makes it deliberative? Well, the Senate, by its own rules, not by the Constitution, by its own rules, protects the rights of individual senators. Individual senators in the Senate have enormous power. Even one senator doesn't take a majority. One senator can prevent a, a nominee for federal office uh, for an appointment to be confirmed by the Senate. One single senator for no reason. And on and on and on it goes. And thus we have the House of Representatives, which is the people's body, which since they get elected every two years, they're constantly running for re-election, and therefore they have to pay attention to what the people want, because they can be running for re-election before they know it. They are the people's house. But then we have the Senate with a six-year term, which is not so sensitive to the passions of the people. They get to sit around for six years, and they can be wrong based upon the passions of the moment without fear of being kicked out of office. And they are the more deliberative body, intentionally so. Now, that's all background. What the Democrats 
are disappointed that now that they have control of all three branches of government, well, I shouldn't say control of all three branches, they don't have control, perhaps I should say yet, of the uh, judicial branch, but they have control of the presidency and the what's called the Democratic branches, the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Okay. And they want to say, we're in control now. We were voted in. Elections have have consequences. And that means we can we should be able to do whatever we want. The people have spoken. And now we have the Senate, with its rules, stands in the way of the Democrats getting what they want. And they say, this is the chance of a lifetime. We have spent our entire lives praying for this moment, and darn it, the Senate and its stupid rules are not going to stand in our way. And they are saying, screw deliberation, screw thoughtfulness, let's strike while the iron is hot. And the Senate rules, especially the filibuster, stand in their way. Well, they are determined. Rules are meant to be broken, so say the the Democrats are disposed of, so they are trying to get rid of the rules of the Senate, which are like the they keep things moving slowly, thank heaven. And this, the filibuster, is the main rule standing in the way. It is, one can say, it is anti-democratic. It prevents majority rule. Thank heaven it does. The majority is not any smarter than the minority. Thank heaven we have rules like the filibuster, but that's what this battle is all about. And if the filibuster and other Democratic goals are achieved, I think it's fair to say political life in America will, in 2021, change from that which it has been in the prior 240 years. The country will change profoundly, unhappily, for the worst. And the minority, instead of having a minority say, will have no say. And anybody who doesn't believe in progressive principles might as well pack it up. Because you get no say anymore. No one cares what you think. That's what's at stake in this Congress. And you know what's ironic about all this, Bob? We're going to take a time out and we'll dive into this a little bit deeper. But what's ironic about all of this is, and you, you've, you, you've really helped to create a clean, clear picture here, that the sense of some of this, some of, of this process of passing laws is Rube Goldberg-like, it's clumsy, it's clunky, it's inefficient, and aren't we thankful that it's so? Were it not from oh, yes. for some of this clunkiness and inefficiency, it would allow Congress to pass even more laws. And understand that when we talk about Congress passing a law, most of the time, and I, I don't know this uh, to any degree of empirical evidence, but I'm willing to bet that most of the time, those laws that are passed by Congress typically end up regulating or restricting somebody's rights 
Now, there are times when government has a responsibility to step in for the good of the people and, and create kind of the, 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 the guidelines. They have to establish, you know, where, where are the lines on the freeway that we drive so we don't get all into major traffic accidents by, you know, trying to jam uh, 40 lanes of traffic into an area only designed for two. So that is a good thing. That when we see this kind of traffic jam or log jam in Congress, be mindful that that means that they are being forced to deliberate, forced to reason, forced to compromise, to hopefully create that better union, create those better laws that are to the benefit of all of us and not one side running roughshod over the other. Now, here's where the rub comes in, and we're going to get to this right after the break, and that is this tendency dependent upon who's in power and who's not, to claim that they either want to keep it or get rid of it. Ironically, in the case of the current debate, uh, we find a good number of um, members of the Senate uh, that, uh, that quite frankly, as they are de- debating uh, the, the entirety of all of this, uh, were <laughs> largely very much in favor of the filibuster. They were for it before they were against it. Well, why is that? We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. With us today is Bob Zadek. He is a nationally syndicated talk show host, a host of the Bob Zadek Show, broadcast here in the San Francisco Bay Area each Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. You can get more information about Bob's work, his weekly broadcast, resources related to guests, podcasts from past shows, all kinds of great goodies when you check out his website, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our discussion over the battle over the filibuster as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Remember when you were a kid, get together with a bunch of the guys and gals and head to the local sand lot or vacant lot and go play round of stickball. Usually a lot of fun. As I recall, typically, whoever owned the ball made the rules, which for a game of pickup ball at a sand lot played amongst a bunch of eight-year-olds, it's probably an okay way to spend an afternoon. But it certainly is no way to legislate or pass laws and govern a nation. And yet that kind of is the feeling we're talking about here. Bob Zadek is with us tonight. He is a best-selling author and the host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek Show, heard here in the Bay Area Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. I invite you to make an effort to tune in, check out his program, and you can get more details online at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Dot com and, and Bob, ironically, uh, as I mentioned before the break, uh, now that the Democrats um, are eager to potentially even use the so-called nuclear option, which we'll have you explain to listeners, we're finding that the Democrats who were um, all in, totally for the filibuster before they were against it, seem to be in sort of that... Um, uh, that eight-year-old sandlot position right now. They own the ball, sort of, so they're going to decide to uh, make up the rules, and yet I have to wonder if they decide to um, blow this whole thing up and new- use the nuclear option, um, don't they run the risk, uh, the risk of the tables being turned in two years when somebody else owns the ball? Uh, 
I hope that's the case, um, and I hope that is influences the decisions they make. But here's why I am a tad hesitant, and you almost can hear my voice quiver when I speak. Some of the plans that the Democrats have for legislation, H.R. 1 and other bits of legislation, uh, if once they or if they totally erase the Republican Party and anybody who's not a progressive, once they erase, I'll go out on a limb and say us, once they erase us from the equation, Craig, there's nothing stopping them. And it is easy for any party in power with absolutely no structural opposition to pass legislation that will alter the voting process, as the Democrats have plans to do, and so alter the mechanics of our political life that they will never lose another election. Now, I have never on your show or on my own show ever sound even slightly alarmist. But I say this with just a twitch, a touch of alarm, because it is possible, it is possible that being drunk, intoxicated with this power, they have the tools. Once they trash the Senate rules, they have the tools to maybe ensure they never lose another election. And then, then the only barrier we have left, the only protection we have left is the Supreme Court. And a lot of what they plan on doing, they being the progressive Democrats, a lot of what they plan on doing appears to be, at least in part, unconstitutional. And we would hope that the Supreme Court would stand in their way. However, the last president who had an aggressive, unconstitutional agenda was FDR. And FDR went up against a moderate or somewhat conservative court in the middle of the 1930s. He threatened, as we all know, to pack the court. And the Supreme Court, in order to save the institution of the court, changed. And all of a sudden, it was decided that a lot of Roosevelt's legislation, which a month earlier was clearly unconstitutional, became constitutional, and the country has never recovered from that. So even when I say to myself and to you and to our listeners, well, the Supreme Court will protect us, well, 1937 shows maybe there's no basis to hope for that. Now, um, because we are talking about a subject that's kind of scary, my conclusions seem a bit scary. I can't speak politelyhood, but I can tell you that before Georgia went Democratic with two Democratic senators, which was um, a moment that perhaps changed our country forever, before that happened, 
I felt highly confident. Well, if bad things happen, 2022 will fix it, and the Republicans will take back the Senate and maybe even the House, and then we'll have a go at it at a more balanced government. I now, when I see the Democrats willing to trash the Senate, to make the Senate a totally non-deliberative body, just a rubber stamp, I, my confidence wanes just a bit. So, yes, I think you're right. I hope you're right. But I'm less, conf- less confident than I was before the Georgia runoff. And, and, you know, to just sort of uh, tack on to your observation in relationship to the Supreme Court and, and kind of the sense of it maybe being the break, um, you know, that's all well and good. But I also kind of look at this from the standpoint of that you would hope there would be enough accountability and responsibility amongst our electors to make the right decisions. Yes, we know the Supreme Court is there, but that's like saying, well, you know, we can drive as crazy as we want and not worry about it because, after all, we're using a seatbelt and have airbags. Well, <laughs> they, they may be there to assist you in the crash, but why tempt fate? And and therein, I think, lies the real concern here. I also find it ironic, Bob, and I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, that the Democrats Democrats uh, were for the filibuster before they were against it, and quite squarely so. Um, ironically enough, and I don't know if you can um, verify this number from your own reading, but to my understanding, in the last four years, the Democrats utilized the filibuster no less than 314 times. Seemingly this is a little a little bit disingenuous that suddenly they wish to dispose of a, a procedural methodology within the Senate that they have used quite handily over the last four years. But of course, uh, neither party, although every party takes advantage of the existing tools in our country to their advantage when they can, but nobody until now has really started to say it's not enough to take advantage of the existing parliamentary tools. That's like fair game. But let's change the rules because now the procedure is less important than getting the result we want. It's so therefore. I don't have a problem because it's part of what you you expect with political hypocrisy. I don't have a problem with the Republicans saying we favor power to the states. But then let's legislate what we want and compel the states to do it. And that happens all the time. And then the Democrats say power should be to Washington, but let's let the states decide certain things when we're in power. I don't have a problem with that, because that's simply saying certain rules we're going to use to our advantage and certain rules we're not. But when they change the rules, Craig, you mentioned stickball and the games that you and I grew up with. And by the way, I was hoping we were going to spend the rest of the hour talking about stickball because it'd be a lot of fun <laughs> hitting the ball two stewards and the like. But, but that's for another day, Craig. But it's one thing when you and I would 
choose up sides and go play a game in the schoolyard or in the park. And we would try to win. But if we're winning and somebody comes along and says, okay, from now on, we're changing the rules to make it a level playing field, or we're changing the rules, we would feel cheated. Well, if we're cheated in the park, if somebody changes the rules, so we who are winning the game now lose, if we feel cheated and it's unfair and mistreated on a park, in a park playground, how will we feel when it happens to our country? I can't even imagine, Greg. Yeah, and there's there's so much at stake here right now because, as we've seen, in the midst of not just the consternation over governance and these narrow margins and the, the apparent inability to lesser or more degrees from both sides uh, to to engage in give and take as opposed to uh, what appears to be their, their willingness and, and desire to just embrace raw partisan power. But then you add to that issues related to the recovery of the economy me, the ongoing challenges of COVID-19, um, w- what this is going to mean long term insofar as do we ever decide to address the debt or we, do we continue to kick the can down the road? What of issues in relationship to our relations with countries like China and Russia? I mean, there, there's so many things at play here and the ability of Congress to come together and make decisions that are for the good of the people and to understand, as I kind of around the periphery alluded to a moment ago, that, that sometimes the system of checks and balances goes beyond the, the three branches of government, but it also goes to procedural issues, which in the wisdom of our founding fathers, they put in place that would intentionally make this a bit more challenging and uh, and and would create a an arena that would cause would be a cause for pause before enacting laws and uh, you know uh, bob i've often heard it said that uh, lawmaking is much like uh, making sausage uh, you might enjoy the outcome but n- nobody really wants to see what the process looks like and this is probably largely true of even procedural um, matters such as the filibuster, but to see this abused in a significant way, and I had to laugh when, when in the press conference today, uh, President Biden as much as suggested that the filibuster has been abused in a gigantic way by the Republicans, uh, which is a proverbial case of uh, um, uh, tur- tur- turning uh, turning that uh, uh, the carpet over to the other side, when in reality, as I mentioned before, In the last four years, the Democrats have employed the filibuster 314 times. Final question for you tonight, Robert. I'm curious. There's been some talk of um, uh, potential retaliation by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, If that is to be true, is that something that we have to wait for two years to take place? Is nope. there anything available in, in his arsenal that could prevent the Democrats from going down this road, using the nuclear option and essentially lots. Um, uh, nullifying lots. it? There's lots. McConnell is a parliamentary genius and just play on YouTube or wherever you have access to it. McConnell's speech in the well of the Senate when he said if the republic if the democrats seek 
to undo the Senate rules. There are many rules that cannot be undone, and I have them at my disposal, such as roll call votes, such as um, waiving um, such as requiring unanimous consent. He has lots of of arrows in his quiver, so I am kind of hopeful, but don't know enough about it to hope that McConnell does have antidotes. And if I may, Craig, you made reference to Biden complaining that the Republicans have used or perhaps abused the filibuster. It's interesting that Obama, many years ago during his presidency, when he spoke about getting rid of the filibuster, his frame of reference was that was that the filibuster was used by the uh, the Democrats, of course the Southern Democrats to uh, promote and encourage and retain Jim Crow laws. So he complained that it was an instrument of segregation, omitting that the instrument was one of to keep segregation, but it was used exclusively by Democrats. So a bit of hypocrisy, no headline there, but it is simply a tool. And the fact is it prevents bad things from happening, and it requires compromise. Once you say, it's like saying, you're not allowed to debate if you have a disagreement. You have two choices. If you don't agree, you go along, or you get your musket out of the barn. When you take away the option of having a debate, of having a conversation, in this case in the Senate, when you say there's no need for debate, we have majority, and we don't care what you think. Craig, human nature, when you tell somebody who doesn't agree with you, you know, I don't care if you disagree, and you have no choice. What does that do to the person who hears that? It brings out the worst in them. That's what's scary. It it flies in the face of how humans would naturally react if they are saying, we don't care what you think, especially in America today, when the country is, by any measure, so evenly divided. So we have a tiny, tiny majority imposing the most extreme aspects of their point of view on minority that's almost the same size as the majority and they're extreme laws or threatening to do so on half of our country almost exactly half that's what's scary it's it's a recipe for bad will and scariness and i just wish wouldn't they would encourage debate not make debate useless. You're absolutely right. And at the end of the day, that sense of being able to come together, have a meeting of the minds, engage in some compromise, if the true goal is what is best for the good of the country and not purely promoting a singularly raw partisan power agenda, then there should be no no fear whatsoever over the filibuster. In fact, if anything, it, it, it should be embraced because if it makes it more difficult to get certain narrow legislation passed, well, isn't that a good thing? So that at the end of the day, we're making sure that we are indeed protecting the best interests of the majority of Americans and not just, well, 
there's a hundred of us in the room. If we can just get 51, doesn't really sound like it's acting in good faith, nor in the best interest of the totality of the country. We always appreciate the insights that Bob Zadek brings to often confusing and complicated issues. This, to be sure, yet another one of them. These and many others he breaks down with his uh, entertaining and informative guests every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on 860 AM, The Answer. That's our sister station here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We invite you to tune in, check the program out. You can easily get information, too, about Bob and his work by going online to bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. There you'll find not only information about past shows, podcasts, resources on previous guests, and also information about how to buy Bob's books. So check him out online and then check him out on air. The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer, online anytime at bobzadek.com.